Psalm 32. How are we doing this morning? We're awake? We're ready to go? Psalm 32. This was uh, Augustine. You familiar with the name Augustine? Augustine wrote a number of books, early church father. This was Augustine's favorite psalm. Psalm 32 was actually written above his bed. Uh, It actually wasn't written above his bed. And then he asked for it to be engraved above his bed before he died. On his deathbed, he asked that this psalm be engraved above his deathbed. Why? Because, quote, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. Augustine said the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. Now this is a very difficult thing in our context and our culture because we do not like to talk frankly about sin. We do not like to call each other sinners or have somebody call us a sinner. I feel pretty good about myself. I think you should too. I'm not really that bad. I mean, look at Hitler. I'm not that bad, so I'm doing better than he is. I'm good. Here's the problem. If we do not speak, and we we don't need to be offensive, like purposefully so or needlessly so, but if we don't speak biblically about our sin, explicitly about our sin, this is what happens. There's a great illustration from a preacher from the 1800s. A man asked this preacher, he had been preaching on sin, and a man came forward after this man's sermon and said, excuse me, preacher, could you please stop speaking so frankly about sin? Call it something else. My son and my daughter are scared that they are sinners. Please stop speaking about sin so explicitly. Just relabel it. Call it something different. The pastor, as the story goes, took him into his office. I don't know why the pastor had rat poison in his office, but apparently he did. So he took him into his office, and the pastor said, Look, look at this bottle of rat poison. And sure enough, the label says rat poison with the um, skull and crossbones over it. The pastor said, If I were to put a different label over this, let's say the essence of peppermint, and put that over this bottle of rat poison... Does it change the rat poison? No. What happens is you make that bottle more dangerous. The more mild we speak about what's inside of that bottle, the more dangerous that bottle becomes. The milder we make sin out to be, the more dangerous sin becomes to us because we make light of it. We deal with it with a different label. This psalm from David, as you can see under Psalm 32, the little superscription there, a psalm of David, a mascal. This was written by David, and it's written to speak frankly about sin. And if we're to get into his heart, into David's mind, this psalm was written more than likely after his encounter and his sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah and with Nathan ultimately calling him out on his sin. Psalm 51 precedes this psalm. So if this psalm were written after the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but if this psalm were written after that, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, verses, or 11 and 12, those two chapters, if this psalm is written after that, then Psalm 51 comes first. That's the psalm of confession and repentance. And then this psalm is written after Psalm 51 
to speak looking back on when David relabeled his sin, when he changed it, when he dealt with it incorrectly, and then what happened when he finally dealt with it correctly. But let's get inside his mind for just a second before we dive in. How did David potentially relabel his sin? You remember his sin. If, if we call it what it is, so it's adultery, right? He, first of all, he should have been at war with all of his fellow soldiers. Instead, he stayed home, stayed behind. He was out on the top of his roof looking out, saw a woman bathing, found her to be beautiful, called her to his court, slept with her. She was the wife of Uriah. So, number one, he committed adultery. Number two, let's call it what it is, because my guess is that she wasn't going willingly, so it was more likely rape. And then, after he finds out that she is pregnant, he tries to bring Uriah home and have Uriah sleep with his wife so that Uriah would think the kid is his and everything would be covered up. So David's already thinking, I can cover this up because ultimately I'm the king and it's okay and I should get what I want. And who is this man? He's just a little citizen. He's a little peon. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, you know the story. Uriah goes back to battle. Uriah does not sleep with his wife because he says, how could I sleep with my wife? And be with her when the rest of my countrymen are out fighting on the battlefield. No, I'm going to stay outside of my house. And even though David gets him drunk, he says, no, I will not go in. I will stay here. I will be of sober mind. And um, goes back to the battlefield. David has him killed, ultimately has him executed. So we've got rape. We've got adultery. We've got murder. But he relabeled it as he's going through it. It's my prerogative. It's my need what I want. I'm the king. I should get what I want. However, he is justifying his sin. He does so. And about a year later, Nathan comes more like eight, nine months later, Nathan comes and says, you've done wickedly. You've done wickedly. Psalm 51 will come after David's encounter with Nathan. And then Psalm 32 will come after Psalm 51. David writes this psalm to speak frankly of his sin and ultimately to speak frankly of what happens when you do not deal with your sin rightly and what happens when you do deal with sin rightly. So I want to read this psalm and then we'll dive into it together after asking the Lord's blessing on our time. Psalm 32, a psalm of David, a maskil. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of the summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. 
Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all of you who are upright in heart. Father, I pray that you would guide our time this morning. May your spirit clarify all of the words that you have written that he wrote so many years ago. Father, we all find ourselves in this psalm, whether having dealt with guilt, whether dealing with guilt right now, whether about to deal with guilt, we are all sinners, we are all under condemnation, and we all need forgiveness. And I pray specifically as we contemplate the Lord's Supper, as we prepare to encounter a time of reflecting And taking communion, I pray that this psalm would ignite a passion in our heart to rejoice in the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray for any in this room who do not know you as Lord and Savior and maybe are dealing with guilt in a way that is not right and they're trying to remove it on their own or trying to sugarcoat their sin or justify or make excuses for wrongdoing. God, give us humble hearts and open ears and teachable minds to hear from you this morning. We pray it in your name. Amen. Psalm 32, a psalm of David, and then it says a maskil. We already came across this in Psalm 42. What does maskil mean? Why does David say it's a maskil, and why don't we translate that word? Uh, we spoke the last time we talked in Psalm 42, it's a transliterated word like hallelujah or something like that where um, usually we transliterate words when either we know exactly what they mean like hallelujah we know it means praise the lord or abba we know it means daddy or when we don't know what it means and that's the case here we don't fully know what it means but if you look at the closest greek word if you're to look in like a, a lexicon or a dictionary in the hebrew in a way that you look at the closest related word to this word maskil the closest related word would show up in verse 8. I will instruct you. That instruct, that word instruct is the closest uh, family related word to that word masculine. So we can say that this is a song of instruction. David is picking up the pen to teach. It's really a sermon by David and ultimately the introduction is in verses 1 through 5, and then the actual body of the sermon is in verses 6 through 11. It starts with an intro that David gives for our instruction, and it's from a personal testimony standpoint. And then he works through, based on the truth of what happened to him, this is how you and I should live. So the way we're going to outline this is really just three points, three main ways that we can live in the joy of, of the Lord's forgiveness. Three ways or really three disciplines that we must have in order to live in the joy of the Lord's forgiveness. In order to understand sin rightly, in order to understand what guilt is, in order to understand how to be forgiven, and then to live in joy. Christians, true Christians, should be the happiest people in the world because they have been forgiven by the creator of the world. So let's start with Discipline number one, if you want to live in the joy of the Lord's forgiveness in verses one through five, you must allow guilt to do its job. You must allow guilt 
to do its job. Let's start in verse 1. How blessed, David starts out, how blessed is he? Blessed, we saw this in Psalm 1, way back when, when we started in the beginning of the summer. Asher, happy, it's in the plural. The, oh, the blessednesses. I typed that into my Word doc several times and just kept having a red squiggly line under it. That's not a word, but it is a word in the Hebrew. Oh, the blessednesses. Oh, how multiplied your blessings are to be forgiven. And then David tells us something, and this is crucial for us to understand. Three words for wrongdoing, for offenses against God. He says this, how blessed is he whose, number one, transgression is forgiven. Number two, sin is covered. And number three, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. You say, well, what about deceit? In whose spirit there is no deceit. Well, deceit is just not saying that you have those three words for wrongdoing. Deceit is just saying, no, I'm not really a sinner. I'm not really in trouble. I haven't really done anything wrong. So deceit, though it is sinful, that's not a word for sin ultimately at the heart level. It's just saying, I'm not really that bad. I really haven't done these things. Why are these three words important? Can I give you just a definition for each word? I think you'll find this to be valuable. As I studied through this, this really encouraged my own heart and made me understand, I I think, a little bit more of what David's trying to say. Transgression. What does it mean to transgress? Sounds kind of like trespass. To, To go beyond something. To transgress is when God says, do this or don't do this, and you go beyond it. So, for instance, God says, do not murder. If you kill somebody, you have transgressed the law. You've gone beyond it. As we're passing uh, the plates, right, God has said that you are to cheerfully give to your, your local church. As the plates are going by, when God says, um, he says, don't steal, right? So Chelsea probably does this as the plates are going by. She probably grabs some money. Hey, let's take some home with us. Um, as it's going by, if you do that, you have transgressed the law. You've gone beyond. You've stepped out of the bounds of what God has told you to do. Sin is the opposite. Second word, sin. Sin is God. And you, you, know, you know this from uh, Romans 3. Uh, sin, we could say um, in the Greek word, hamartia. It just literally means to miss the mark. Sin is missing the mark. But let's say it the way that we say it with transgression. If, if transgression is God says don't do this and you go beyond it and you do it when you shouldn't, Sin is God saying, do this, and you never get to it. You never reach it. So again, if we're talking about passing the plate, transgression is stealing from the plate, stealing money, and sin would be not giving money. Does this make sense so far? We've got transgression. We've got sin. What's iniquity? A great word. Literally, it just means to twist or distort. This is taking God's rule... And doing it in your own way is like when my parents used to say, make your bed. And so, you know, clean your room and make your bed. I'd take all of the stuff that was on my floor and throw it onto my bed and then throw my comforter over the stuff. So, there, you know, Mount Everest is on my bed with a comforter over it. I made my bed and I cleaned my room. Is that really what my parents wanted me to do? No. That's iniquity. That's doing something, but not doing it the way that God wants you to do it. That's not doing it the way that God would want you to do it. So the reason why I say this is helpful and instructive to us is this. 
David's going to speak about guilt. He's going to talk about what happens when you do things that are wrong and the way that you feel once you do them. Here's my question. Which is easiest to feel guilty about, transgression, sin, or iniquity? Which is easiest? It's transgression, right? God says, don't do this, you do it. You know it's wrong. Probably the second hardest would be sin. When God says to do something and and you don't quite do it, maybe you tried, but you didn't quite get all the way there and you missed the mark. Well, at least I tried. We start to throw in some excuses and rationale. And then iniquity. Iniquity, I think we don't feel guilty about our iniquity a lot. Because we think, hey, I I did something. At least I did something. your, Your parents tell you, make your bed and you wash your windows. Look, I did something, but that's not what I asked you to do. Thank you, but no thank you. You did not obey. That's iniquity. The reason why I think this is helpful is because we need to learn to feel as guilty over our iniquity as we do over our transgression. I think in the Christian life, we start, hopefully, Lord willing, seeing a lot less of transgressions, of just willful disobedience, going against God's law, and we start seeing more sin, but then that starts to decrease, but we see a lot of iniquity where we're doing things that God asks us to do in ways he does not ask us to do them. And we need to feel guilty over all of them. If we are to live in the joy of the Lord's forgiveness, we need to allow guilt to do its job. If we do not feel guilty over transgression or sin or iniquity, and we start to have a deceitful attitude, a spirit of deceit, well, I'm not doing too badly then we won't be feeling the warning signs that God gives us. And there are so many times, imagine a car. If I'm driving on the freeway, I know nothing about cars. If I'm driving on the freeway, there are certain things that happen to cars that even I know it's wrong. It's not good, right? If I'm driving, I don't need a warning light to say check engine if I see smoke coming out of the hood of my car, right? I know, pull over. I'll probably look under the hood, I'm always hoping for some big button that says, push me and everything will be better. Nothing's there. I look, I go, yeah, it looks fine to me. Just billowing smoke coming out of it. Don't need a warning light for that. That's transgression, right? No, I know something went wrong. How many times, if we're honest, does the check engine light come on and you freak out? "Uh Uh-oh, something's wrong. You think your car's going to blow up. And then you you turn, turn down the radio. Okay, I don't hear anything bad. I don't feel anything bad. I don't see anything, you know, all the meters, everything looks good. Yeah, it's fine. Just keep driving. There are things that we need the check engine light for, and that's guilt. That's our conscience being informed with God's word. That is something that you've done wrong, and we need to pull over. We need to take to the mechanic. We need to go before the Lord and let him take care of us. The reality is I think we, we look at transgression, we look at sin, we look at Iniquity is three different kinds of sin, and there are so many times that we forget how utterly disgusting sin is to God. The Bible says that sin is uh, a foul stench before the Lord. And I, had a, I had a taste of this this last week, um, walking in, Chelsea had taken a nap, walking to Chelsea's room, and it, you open the door and you're hit with a smell that you didn't even know, like God invented that smell. You open the door, and it's just disgusting. And what do you instantly do? If you're me, you instantly walk out and ask Hannah to come help you. <laughs> She's not home, so what do you do? You wad up Kleenex, shove it in your nose, because you've got to deal with this. 
God does the same thing. He sees us as sinful beings and he doesn't want to get close to us. It, it's repulsive. It's repugnant. He, he walks up to us. No, I want nothing to do with you. And all three of these categories of sin do that. What happens if we twist it, if we don't see sin for what it is, and we won't understand guilt for what it should be doing? Alexander McLaren said this, you have not gotten to the bottom of the blackness of sin until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God himself. Man calls sin an accident. God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a blunder. God calls it blasphemy. Man calls it a chance. God calls it a choice. Man calls it an error. God calls it enmity. Man calls it a fascination. God calls it a fatality. Man calls it an infirmity. God calls it iniquity. Man calls it luxury. God calls it leprosy. Man calls it liberty. God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it trifle. God calls it tragedy. Man calls it a mistake. God calls it madness. Man calls it, oh, it's a weakness. And God calls it willfulness. We must understand what our sin truly is. And if we do not, God gives us a beautiful mechanism to help us understand we've done wrong. And it's found in verses 3 and 4. When David, relabeling his sin, deceitful about his iniquity, kept silent about his sin, guilt started to eat him from the inside out and his body wasted away. His bones, literally the word is his bones, wasted away through his groaning or literally his roaring all day long. Day and night, God's hand was heavy upon him and his vitality, David's vitality was drained as with the fever heat of the summer. Note this, sin affects you physically. It affects how you feel. Now, please know, it doesn't always affect you. So I'm, I'm sick. That could be because of sin. That could also just because, be because my wife and daughter went to VBS and got something from the kids that have just diseases crawling all over them, and I got sick from that. I think we should always check Every time we are sick or every time we are affected, but this is an emotional affection. This is an emotional affecting. His body is drained and hurting. He's really going through, these are words of depression. He's going through depression. And the Bible is very clear that if you hold on to guilt and don't allow guilt to do its job, you will suffer these kinds of consequences physically. Let me give you a couple examples biblically. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. There's a man named Amnon, who is David's son, and he is attracted to his sister, Tamar. And it says that he is so attracted to his sister sexually that he makes himself sick because he cannot have her. So his idolatry, ultimately he rapes her, and then he's affected again and starts hating her. Sin affects us. His... his, sinful desire for his sister affects him so much that it says he makes himself ill. He starts throwing up because he wants something that he can't have. He is so sinfully involved. Another passage I would take you to is Matthew 18. Somebody, and this is a believer, somebody who does not forgive their brother or sister the way that they have been forgiven, Jesus says he hands that person over to the torturers until they get it and forgive the person the way that they have been forgiven by Jesus. 
If you struggle with bitterness, we know bitterness eats you up inside. Bitterness and um, trying to have a revengeful attitude. It's like trying to drink poison and have the other person die. It kills you and nothing happens to the other person. So Matthew 18, 2 Samuel 13, let me give you just an example uh, from modern culture, the, the way that sin affects you. My wife and I were watching television the other day. We watched this show called House, and um, there was, it's always this medical mystery, and there was a guy who was having many heart attacks all the time. He was just constantly having heart attacks, and they didn't know why, and they were doing all these tests. They found out the reason why he was having heart attacks is because there was a woman that he was in love with, but she was engaged to this man's brother, and so he knew he couldn't have her, and so he was constantly struggling with the fact that he couldn't have her, so much so like Amnon with Tamar. And so they're thinking, well, how do we make this lovesick, heartbroken person better? They do this shock therapy, erase all of his memories, so now he's okay. I turned to my wife, I said, biblical counseling, this is idolatry. And if he could fix the idolatry, you can keep all of your memories if you deal with the idol biblically. All that to say, your vitality will be drained if you do not deal with your sin biblically. And this is a good thing. Notice, I think a lot of people instantly say, bad feelings equal Satan acting on me, right? Bad feelings. I shouldn't feel bad. I feel bad. It's Satan oppressing me. No, no, no. If you have sinned and you feel bad over your sin, that's not Satan talking to you. That's God talking to you. There is such a thing as good grief, right? Charlie Brown says that. There's such a thing as good grief. There's such a thing as good sorrow. And if you have sinned and you have not confessed and forsaken it and repented and you feel bad, that is a gift. That's not a bad thing. We in our American culture, we just always want to feel good. We should not feel bad. Anytime we have bad feelings, let's deal with them. Let's figure this all out and get them out of our system. David says, no, it's the warning light on your dashboard. If you could never feel pain physically, like for a split second, you might think, oh, that'd be a cool thing. And then you realize that would be the worst thing in the world. There are people that have that disease. It's leprosy where it eats away at the nerve endings of your fingers and of your nose and you just run into stuff and you burn yourself because you have no way of feeling pain. If that system is gone, you would pay a lot of money to doctors to get you to be able to feel pain again. But when it comes to spiritual things, when we feel guilty, we feel like, oh, I don't want to feel that way. That's a bad feeling. That's why I say, number, point number one, we need to allow guilt to do its job. Guilt is designed by God to say there's something that you've done wrong and you need to deal with it. How do you deal with it? Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Notice, number one, how do you deal with your sin when you are feeling guilt, when God has his hand upon you day and night. When you are feeling guilty and you are not confessing your sin and not forsaking it, what are you supposed to do? Number one, you call sin what it is. Remember the three words up in verses one and two, transgression, sin, and iniquity? 
Look at what David says in verse 5. My sin I acknowledge, my iniquity I didn't hide, and I confessed my transgressions. He does not hide or sugarcoat what he has done. He's not saying, God, please forgive me, but I mean, you know how hard it is, and you know, and then blah, blah, blah. Justification, excuses, rationalization. He says, I sin. Sin is sin is sin, and it is deserving of my punishment. He calls it what it is. He doesn't hide it. He brings it out into the open. He confesses it. You can literally write down confession equals, literally the word is saying the same thing about your sin that God does. That's what confession is. And what does God do? God forgives the guilt of his sin. That word forgave um, is a word that I'll never forget in the Hebrew. Nasa, N-A-S-A. The way that I remember things is word association. Nasa, lifting up into space. Um, That's the word, lift up, to take up, to carry, to bear away. God forgives. He lifts, literally, and you lifted the guilt of my sin. The burden was heavy upon me. Think about Pilgrim's Progress, right? Your your mind probably goes there. Pilgrim's Progress. Christian has this enormous burden over him that is so heavy and he's despairing and he's depressing. God's hand is heavy on him. His vitality is drained because he's carrying this heavy burden. And then he confesses and he forsakes. And what happens? God lifts the guilt and it's gone. And then we see this word, Selah. We saw it already in verse 4, but we see it again here at the end of verse 5. What is Selah? It's another transliterated word, meaning we don't know exactly what it means, so we leave it there in the original Hebrew language. We just put English letters to it. Again, like we did with Maskell, the closest word associated with Selah, the closest next word, is actually a word that means looking up. Okay, So Selah means to look up. In the Septuagint, the word Selah, so in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word Selah is translated dia salmas. Psalms, songs. Dia means through, in between. So looking up in between the songs. This is our English word for it, interlude, interlude. What's happening? Why why looking up? Why is the Hebrew looking up? Because remember, this is a song and it's written for a choir. So the choir is singing and they sing the first stanza and they get to the end of verse four and they see a musical notation. You can look up now. You're not going to sing for a while. You can look up and enjoy the instrumental interlude with everybody else. You don't have to worry about singing for a while and don't worry. The conductor will bring you back in when it's time to sing. Then you come back in, verse 5, you sing it, and then you get to look up again. So what's the point of interludes? What's the point of looking up? That's why you'll hear a lot, Selah means pause. It's time to reflect on what's been said. Selah, look up. There's an interlude to, to reflect. The first interlude comes with David saying, I had guilt that was oppressing me and that was destroying me. And he says, pause on that. And I think the, the reason we should pause on that is he's asking our own hearts, are you struggling with guilt? Is there anything that you have felt guilty about today or over this past week that you are trying to stiff arm and shove it away and say, I don't want to feel guilty anymore. I, I just want to feel good. So forget the guilt, better feelings, happy thoughts. I think David's saying, is there anything that is happening in your life where you are feeling guilt 
and God's hand is upon you and you're not dealing with it. Allow guilt to do its job, which is to point out sin in your life and push you to confess. And that's why the next Selah is there. This is how David dealt with his sin and his guilt and God forgave the guilt, lifted it up. Freedom, forgiveness, clean slate, gone. Sin is gone. So David says, pause on that. Note, you can be forgiven too. You can be forgiven too. If you want to live in the joy of the Lord's forgiveness, first you must allow guilt to do its job. Don't shove it away. Don't stiff arm it. Don't say, I don't want to feel bad. There's a good way to feel bad. And let guilt do its job. But number two, Let guilt do its job and act quickly in confession and repentance. This is verses 6 through 10. Act quickly. Once that guilt, once you feel that guilt, once you have sinned and you start to feel guilty over it, you must act quickly. Once you start to feel sin, or start to feel guilt over your sin, the clock, so to speak, has started. God's timer has started And you have a window of time in which to deal with your sin before something bad happens. Let's look at it. Therefore, verse 6, David says, Because of my experience, therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you, God, pray to you, in a time when you may be found. Meaning what? Meaning there is a time when God may not be found. Now, I want to be careful here because we don't know when that time is. The only, the only concrete time that we know that he may not be found is if you do not deal with your sin and you die. If you do not confess your sin and turn from your sin and turn to Jesus as your only hope of eternal life and you die apart from Jesus Christ, you do not have another chance. That's it. So we know that concretely. And that might be what David is saying here. He might also be speaking of times when guilt is doing its job and we stiff arm it so much that our conscience refuses to speak to us anymore. We have quenched the spirit. We have um, done away with our conscience so much that we've seared it. In the words of Paul in 1 Timothy, we've seared our conscience. We don't feel anything anymore. Whatever this might mean, The reality is there's urgency. Please, if you feel guilt, deal with it. Deal with your sin now. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Let me show you a couple other places in Scripture where God says the same thing. Turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. This is God's invitation for the free offer of mercy and salvation He says this, seek the Lord, Isaiah 55, verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Do it now. If anything, this is what we know, there is an urgency to this message. Act quickly. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And what's going to happen? He will have compassion on him. Turn to our God because he will abundantly pardon. Turn back over to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah says a similar truth. 
Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If, verse 19, if you act quickly, if you consent, if you submit, if you obey, then you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and you rebel, then you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Deal with it now. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that when people are sorrowful about their sin, there are two types of sorrow. There's worldly sorrow. They're sorry about the consequences. Oh, I'm sorry that I hurt you. Or I'm sorry that um, because I did this, this happens to me. Uh, they're not truly sorry that they offended God. And Paul calls that worldly sorrow that leads to death. It doesn't produce anything in you. You just kind of feel sorry and you mope around for a while. But he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, there is such a thing as godly sorrow. You're sorry, yes, that you hurt people and the effects of your sin. You're sorry about that. But ultimately, you are sorry that you offended God. You are brokenhearted that you sinned against God. That's why David says in Psalm 51, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned and gone astray. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and all these other people, but he says, you are the one that I am most distraught over offending. And that godly sorrow, Paul says, produces earnestness, urgency, vigilance. I mean, look at that list on your own time in 2 Corinthians 7. It produces something in you that makes you act quickly. So let guilt do its job, but act quickly in confession and in repentance. Why? Can we be honest? When we are guilty, when we're feeling guilty, let's put ourselves in Adam and Eve's shoes. We are just like them. We're guilty. We realize we're naked. We're ashamed. We want to cover ourselves up and hide. I've sinned and we hide. We literally hide. We just go away. I don't want to see God. I don't want God to see me. Why? Because we think If I stand before God and I say, look, I've done something wrong and I know you hate sin and so you must hate me. If we were to stand before God, he's going to judge us and condemn us. Maybe you're thinking about uh, parents that used to do this to you, that if you were to be honest and evaluate your sin and say, I did something wrong, instead of finding mercy, you would find just abuse maybe and be offended by your parents. But all the verses say the exact opposite. If you have guilt over sin, you should run to God. Don't hide. Don't wait for him to come find you. Run to him and say, I have sinned. And what did Isaiah 55 say? He will abundantly pardon you. You will not just be forgiven. You will be utterly forgiven. And then the effects of his forgiveness show up back in Psalm 32, verse 6, end of verse 6. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You confess, you forsake, you turn, you repent. Not only will God forgive you, not only will he not be against you, he will be for you and will protect you. Verse 7, you will be hidden in God and preserved and protected. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. Let that sink in. Not only is it you are forgiven. I think, again, I think we just think of God relationally like, 
Will you please forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Okay. And you probably want nothing to do with me. And you just kind of part, maybe because we do that humanly. Maybe somebody has offended you and they ask you for forgiveness. And in your heart of hearts, you know you need to forgive them. So you say, yes, I forgive you. But really, you don't want to see them ever again. And you think maybe that's the way that God looks upon you. I know I've sinned against him. And I've asked his forgiveness. And I know he's supposed to forgive me because that's what he says he's going to do. Right? John, 1 John 1, 9. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's it. It's done. And surely now God must want nothing to do with me. No. Selah, let this sink in. Not only does God not not want anything to do with you, he wants everything to do with you. That's the whole reason he forgives you, to get the sin out of the way, to reconcile you to himself so that he can protect you, surround you, deliver you, preserve you. Then in verse 8, the psalm takes a little bit of a twist. My Bible says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. My Bible NASB says, my is capitalized M. There's something that is very interesting that happens in verse 8. And it's really as if God is taking up the pen. That's why the word my in my Bible is capitalized. What happens is, this entire psalm is David speaking to you all, right? It's the second person plural, you. It's only Texans understand it. It's y'all. Um, you all. He's saying you, but he's saying y'all. He's saying everybody. But here, though we would think it would be, I will instruct y'all and teach y'all in the way that y'all should go, it's not second person plural. It's second person singular. I will instruct you, singular person. I will teach you, singular person. This is God taking the pen and saying, If you confess and if you repent, not only will I be the hiding place for you and surround you and deliver you, not only will I protect you, but verse 8, I personally will instruct and direct you. I will teach you. I will instruct, teach, and counsel you. You'll never be lost with where to go, with what to do. If you would only allow guilt to do its job, act quickly in confessing and repenting, then I will be with you wherever you go and instruct you and counsel you and teach you. God personally says that. It's like David is writing and God says, wait, I need to tell people something. I will instruct you. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I will teach you. He's just giving us another motivation to please repent now. For you will never lose your way with God's eye upon you. Then God gives the pen back to David in verse 9. David says, do not be, and that's the do not y'all, that's back to the second person plural, do not y'all be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding. Don't be like them. Don't be like a mule that I remember in Israel we went to this one place where there was a it was like a donkey farm and um, there are donkeys everywhere, mules everywhere, just these animals that just, you could tell by their eyes they hated life. They're just standing there. I don't want to do anything you tell me to do. And they would literally do that. Like these terribly stupid animals had some brains in them because the, the cattle drivers would say, get up, go, go, go. And they'd like push them and they would just stand there and not move. And they, I mean, it was, it's like they had this most amazing personality. They would just kind of look and go, 
you know, just their eyes rolling and what's going on. And then whenever the guy would turn, he'd be hitting him on the back. Hurry up, move. Ah, and he'd turn. Whenever he turned his back, the mule would just kind of go like that. Like, see, when you're not looking, I'll do what you want me to do, but you're never going to make me do it. Like, totally stubborn. And David says, don't be like that. Don't be somebody who has to be drug along with a bit or a bridle to keep you in check. Ultimately, David was like that in verses 3 and 4. That's being a horse or a mule, keeping silent about your sin, groaning all day long and not dealing with your guilt. So again, David says, act now. Act now. It's as if God is saying... I mean, think about these lightning storms that we've seen and how devastating they are. It's as if God is saying, we're on a farm, and there's the farmhouse, and there's a a barn and a stable, and we're all out in the field, and God's saying, there is a lightning storm coming, and it will strike all of you. Please hurry and come now into the refuge of the barn. Be safe. And we're all out there going, I've got time. Don't worry. I'll be fine. And God is having to put bits and bridles over us and pulling us, saying, no, you don't understand what your sin is going to cost you. You will be destroyed. Come now. It's like Noah and the flood. All of the other people did not believe Noah until the rain started coming, the flood started coming. Noah kept pleading, come to the ark, come to the refuge that is here for you. And they said, no. David says, don't do that. Don't do that. Otherwise, you're not going to come near Otherwise, you are just going to be so stubborn that you'll be stuck in your own ways and God will pass you by and you will not be able to find him. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Why? Why are there many sorrows? Because God is against them. Not only are there sorrows, probably the physical guilt sorrows that are going on, but God is against them. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. So, Allow guilt to do its job. Act quickly. Once you feel that guilt, act quickly. And thirdly and finally, if you desire to live a life that is filled with joy, living in the Lord's forgiveness, number three, you must be glad and rejoice over your forgiveness. Be glad and rejoice over your forgiveness. You could say it this way, glory in your forgiveness. This is verse 11, and it's a command. There are three commands here. Number one, be glad. That's an imperative. Be glad in the Lord. Number two, rejoice. That's an imperative, you righteous ones. And number three, shout for joy, all of you who are upright in heart. Joy, as Tim Keller says, is the marker of the justified person. We go around sulking, we go around sad, we go around mopey, and maybe it's because we are struggling with guilt. But here's what we need to do. Let's go back. We need to let guilt do its job, right? If we have sinned and we feel guilty and we have not confessed or repented, we need to let guilt do its job. But let's say this emphatically. Once we have let guilt do its job and once we have confessed repented and forsaken sin, then we throw guilt away. Then we show guilt the door. Then we say, it's done. You've done your job. Now you can leave. And guess who is the one who takes up the guilt as soon as we throw it away? His name is the accuser of the brethren, right? The devil, devil, diablos, his name, that means accuser. 
Once we have good guilt and we allow that good guilt to do what it's supposed to do, drive us to the cross, drive us to repentance. When we throw that guilt away, when it's done, God has lifted it up and thrown it away. It's as as gone as the east is from the west, as far away as the bottom of the ocean. And Satan goes diving down in the bottom of the ocean, grabs the guilt and shoves it in your face and says, you should feel guilty over your sin. This is where David says, no, guilt has done its job. Throw it away. No more do you have to feel this guilt. Why? Because Jesus did away with your sin. Jesus threw it away. He forgave the guilt. So if God is forgiving the guilt, you surely can forgive or or forget the guilt. You don't need to worry about it. You don't need to forgive yourself. A lot of people think that. A lot of people think, oh, I need to forgive myself. I'm struggling to forgive myself. You don't need to forgive yourself. If God can forgive you, then ultimately a struggle to forgive yourself is a struggle with pride because you think, You are so important that you're unforgivable by the God of the universe. What you need to do is obey these commands. You need to be glad. You need to rejoice in your forgiveness. You need to let guilt do its job and then throw it away. You need to tell the devil, God gave me the guilt in the first place, and now you're taking it up and trying to shove it in my face. Though I am deserving of the death that you are trying to condemn me with, Jesus paid that debt. And I'm free. And you have nothing on me. Let guilt do its job and then throw it away. Throw it away. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice. Oh, you righteous ones, the ones that are walking in the newness of that forgiveness. You upright in heart. Shout for joy. Don't sulk when you struggle with guilt and you will struggle every day with guilt because the accuser wants you to feel guilty. He wants those who have been forgiven completely by God to act as if they haven't because then they won't be able to show forth the glory of forgiveness. Satan wins. Satan wins when we walk around sulking in our guilt. If, please hear clearly, if we feel guilty because we haven't confessed or forsaken sin, then yes, it's good to feel guilty for that. Let guilt do its job. But brothers and sisters, when guilt has done its job and we have confessed, forsaken, repented, and turned to Jesus and he's forgiven us, then we need to do what the song says. When Satan tempts us to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. It's over. It's done. It's done. What's the conclusion of all this? God calls you today to admit your own sin. What's the prerequisite of experiencing the forgiveness described in these verses? You have to confess and admit that your sin is real. Call it what God calls it. Reject it as repulsive. If you confess sin in your heart, but you do not have repulsion against that sin or about that sin, then it's not true confession. You have to hate that sin. Why is that the prerequisite? Why is that necessary? Because every sin is an insult to God. It's a slap in his face. God doesn't just overlook our sins. It wouldn't be righteous if he did that. That's why he had to kill his son. You and I deserve death. So he said, I don't want them to die. I'm going to kill my son in their place, bearing the wrath that their sin deserves. So if you would repent and turn to him, you will have forgiveness of sins. What's so blessed about having your transgressions forgiven? the greatest thing in the world. No longer do you have to fear hell. 
No longer do you have to fear death. No longer do you have to fear the enemy of the brothers, the accuser. Though your sin is scarlet, it's crimson, it's red, Jesus can make it white as snow. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 3. We'll end in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12. You notice there are three words in Psalm 32 for sin, right? Or for offense against God. There are three words, transgression, sin, and iniquity. Brothers and sisters, there's three better words in Psalm 32. Forgiven, covered. The Lord doesn't impute. He doesn't put it into your account. He takes it upon himself. This is what God calls us to do. Please listen to God's own words. Verse 12 of Jeremiah chapter 3. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel. Obviously God is speaking to Israel, but this is a call to us as well. Return, declares the Lord, and I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. And you know those words now. You have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. You have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. So acknowledge your iniquity, acknowledge your sin, and God will be gracious. He will be gracious. David Wells says this, Christ died for our sins, for us, in our place, And for our benefit, he absorbed the judgment that should have fallen on us. Therefore, we must cherish our forgiveness. Jared Wilson says it this way, Christian, the one who knows you best, all of your secrets, all of your sins, all of your cravings, all of your failings, loves you most forever. Turn lastly to Jeremiah chapter 32. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, this is a perfect sermon to go right into the Lord's Supper. Forgiveness, guilt, sin, repentance, confession. But let's look at what Jesus' forgiveness ultimately brings to us. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40. We should memorize this verse. This is when Jesus, or this is when God is talking about the new covenant that is ultimately going to be made in the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is the promise that Jesus has purchased for us to cling to. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40. I, this is God speaking, will make, through the blood of Jesus Christ, an everlasting covenant, the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, with them. This is not only with new Israel, with the Israel that would believe in God, but this is with us believers being grafted in, Gentiles being grafted in. We are partakers of the everlasting covenant. So I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And this is what the promise is. This is what God has promised to do for you and for me today and forevermore. I will not turn away from them. Instead, I will do them good And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them 
good. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the fact that our sin, though worthy of our judgment and punishment and death, was paid for on the cross so that, look at this promise. This promise is bought for us in the new covenant. This is the promise. God will not turn away from us and will never not do good to us. And he will place the fear of him in our hearts so that we will not turn away from him. He's going to keep us. He's going to take us. He's going to sustain us. So, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, this is what I want to plead with your hearts. Normally, we look inward, and we should, and maybe spend a minute or two looking inward. Please, if you, if you do not know that if you were to die tonight, if you were to die this afternoon, if you were to go to the beach and be struck by lightning and you were to die and same before God and you do not know if you were to go to heaven. Today is the day of salvation. To admit I am a sinner and my sin deserves eternal punishment and the only way I can be forgiven, not because of my goodness, not because of good works to burn off my bad works. We don't, it doesn't work that way. God says we can never be good enough. That's why he sent his son to die in our place. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ alone as your hope for salvation, today is the day. If you have accepted Jesus Christ, these elements are for you to remember his sacrifice, but this is the way I want to remember it. If you are struggling with guilt and it's good guilt and you need to confess and forsake, do that. Confess and forsake and repent now. But if you have confessed and if you have forsaken and repented of sin and you are still struggling with guilt, this is the time. This is where you have to be careful with communion. We look inward, yes. But you don't stop by looking inward because you'll always see a failure. We need to look upward. We need to look outward. We need to look to Jesus. That's what we're going to do through song as the men come and pass out the elements. Hold on to them. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, please take them there for you. If you're not, if you're not sure, just let them pass by. Don't worry. This is a celebration for those who know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is their salvation and eternal life and their righteousness before the Father. Let's look inward and then look upward to Jesus, our rock of ages. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us. And we turn to him now rejecting any other hope of righteousness or righteous standing. And even now, as we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, as we hold these elements in our hands and we remember your body and your blood broken for us, we cling to you and to you alone.